Good morning, uh, Lakeshore uh, family. I'm so delighted to be with you uh, this morning. God is so good. He's so holy and he's so righteous. And it is my prayer, my deep prayer, that you will be impacted and never be the same after you hear this message. About one and a half years ago, literally about one and a half years ago to the day, one of the most beloved members of Lakeshore City Church, Rosa Stedman, walked into her doctor's office and was diagnosed with a disease called ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Medical journalists describe ALS as something that is ruthless. They describe it as a disease that rips through one's body with fierce intensity and the pain of this disease called ALS is likened to torture. Typically, when someone's diagnosed with ALS, it starts its destruction in the legs and then it works its way into the arms, destroying the motor functions where you're unable to use them. Of course, this uh, leaves the afflicted, in this case, our dear Rosa, needing full-time care. They're un unable to eat. They're unable to drink. They're unable to take a bath without being dependent upon someone else helping them. And that can be hard to swallow. But it got worse and worse and worse for our dear Rosa. You see, this pain, it continued to intensify. And as the pain intensified, so did the dosages of, of uh, morphine and other drugs. At times, the morphine or the other drugs, they, they would ease the pain as they're intended to do. But sometimes medicine eased the pain in one area only to bring discomfort to other areas like the stomach. As if that wasn't enough for our dear Rosa to endure. The disease continued to progress making even the drinking out of a straw. Imagine this, the drinking out of a straw. It was almost as if Rosa was lifting a 500 pound weight. Why? Why would it be so difficult to sip out of a straw? Because you need your muscles. There's muscles in your throat. You need them in order to swallow. It was not long after this that Rosa as she began to decline, she struggled even with the words like yes or no. Even those became difficult to utter. But on Wednesday, June 24th at approximately 1.15, our dear Rosa Stedman, who was surrounded by her beloved husband, Michael, and her children, Dee, Sarah, John, Julia, my wife, Louise, and I, Rosa Stedman, she took her last breath on this earth. And according to God's word, she was immediately ushered into glory to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I find great comfort in that this morning. If you've ever watched a loved one suffer, have you ever been there? When someone you love is suffering and you feel like you can't do anything, it would be normal to ask yourselves, why? Why does such a thing happen? 
You may even have asked this question, why does God, why does a good God allow such suffering to take place? Or what does God want from us when we suffer? It is my heart's desire on this Lord's Day to answer both of, the, the, both of those questions uh, during our brief time together. The sermon title this morning is called Learning to Suffer Well. The text will be found out of two places, Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10, and also Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Today I want to take you to the place of great suffering. This place is called the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you have your Bibles, would you head on over to Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10, and when I get done reading there, we'll head, all over, head on over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. During his earthly life, this is Jesus, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became, praise God, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hallelujah. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's head on over to Matthew 26 starting with verses 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me just one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, then your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again. And he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And, he became, and then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? You see, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. The Garden of Gethsemane, what is it? It's a, 
It's a grove of twisted olive trees. I've been there before. This is a place that would be very familiar to Jesus and his disciples. This is a place that Jesus frequented numerous times. He went there for solitude. And now this place of solitude has become a place of great sorrow. These verses that we just got done reading, they're a prayer. This is a prayer from Jesus to God. He's in that garden. He's sorrowful and he's praying to God. What we see in this text is the dual nature of Jesus. He is fully God, yet he's fully man. The humanity of Jesus Christ continues to be revealed. There's layers and layers of it here. And he says something to Peter, James, and John that's intriguing to me. He's telling his friends, his disciples, he's saying, stay with me here, guys. I need you. Remain with me, disciples. I need you to be with me. Brothers and sisters, why is he saying that? Ultimately, all he needs is God, but he wants his friends to be with him. He's telling his friends, Peter, James, and John, stay awake. Three times they had to go back to him, stay awake. I've got this darkness, this heaviness. But the men that Jesus trained, they would not be there when Jesus needed them most in his time of need. They would be found sleeping in the corner. Jesus, according to the text, has been abandoned by his friends. Some of you, I bet more than a few of you, understand the pain and what it feels like to be abandoned by those that you love, including friends. There's grace for you if you're experiencing that this morning. Jesus knows something. This is why there's such pain and anguish, anguish in this garden. Jesus knows something. He, he knows uh, what lies ahead for him. Hence why our Savior is experiencing anguish at an unbelievable level. This anguish is so profound. It's so intense that according to God's word, he says, I feel like this is going to kill me. Have you ever been that intense? Have you ever felt something so heavy? that you felt like you were going to die. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Matthew 26, 38 says this, and I quote from the Holy Scriptures. Jesus said, I am deeply grieved. He's not grieved, he's deeply grieved. I'm so grieved to the point of death. That is God's word. That's what it says here. Brothers and sisters, we read in verse 39, that Jesus collapses, as, as the text says. He, he collapses, he, he falls face down, and he fervently begins to pray. What was Jesus praying in that garden? Isn't this interesting and intriguing that we can capture Jesus in this moment, this agonizing moment, this redemptive piece of God's history, his story, this moment in time where it all hinges Jesus Christ begins to pray, and we pick up that prayer. What does he pray? Well, he prays his, verses, his, his prayer to God. Jesus' prayer to God is revealed to us in verses 39, 42, and 44. Here's what it says. My Father, 
If it is possible, this is what he's praying. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. That's Matthew 26, 39. Look at Matthew 26, 42. Again, a second time. He went away. Jesus went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then finally, in Matthew 26, 44, it says, after leaving them, after Jesus leaves the disciples, he went away again and he prayed to the Father a third time, saying the same exact thing once more. Brothers and sisters, these are intense prayers. Theologian John Calvin describes the scene very well as I quote, Jesus trembles in Gethsemane because he has before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with unconceivable, inconceivable vengeance. And because of our sins, the load of which is laid upon him, it's pressing down on him with their enormous weight. That is significant. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is trembling in this garden. He's trembling not because he's afraid of the men that are coming to arrest him. Jesus is not fearful of the whips and the chains and the thorns and the spikes. He did not fear even the cross. We understand this through God's word and we also understand it through history. Brothers and sisters, history tells us God's word tells us that there have been many martyrs. There have been many men that have professed that Jesus Christ is Lord and women who've had to go to their own cross, a literal cross. We have, uh, history will teach us that many of those that profess that Jesus Christ is Lord would go, they would be literally uh, put on a stake and they'd be covered in black pitched and lit on fire to illuminate uh, large gatherings literally burned to death to provide light. Brothers and sisters, history teaches us that as these brave men and women, martyrs for Jesus Christ, went to those crosses and went to those sticks and went to, to be tortured and martyred, they sang hymns praising God for the privilege of following him and dying for so we cannot say, or we can't even imply that Jesus is afraid of the cross. Brothers and sisters, that is heresy. Jesus is not afraid of the cross. That is not what this is teaching. He is the champion of our salvation. Jesus is the champion of our salvation. He understands something. Jesus understands what is in the cup. And he understands that he needs to drink from this cup. Jesus also understands that only he can drink from the cup, no one else. Brothers and sisters, in this cup, it's filled with something. And it's not good. In this cup that I talked to you about this morning, it's a cup that's filled with horror. I mean, literal horror. 
It's a cup that's filled with shame. It's a cup that's filled with destruction. It's a cup that's filled to the brim and overflowing with the perfect wrath of a perfect and just God. Before the whole world was created, Jesus Christ, our great champion, our great high priest, he agreed to drink from this cup. He knew that he was the way of salvation. He was God's redemption plan. And brothers and sisters, this was not a cup that he sipped from. This was not a cup that he nursed on a table for hours. No, my friends, Jesus lifted up that cup and drank that cup all the way to the bottom and there was absolutely nothing left in this cup. So what was in that cup? What is in the cup that we keep talking about in the scripture? The wrath of a holy and righteous God is in that cup. You see, the Father has poured out the most severe, we're talking extreme, severe, severe punishment on Jesus Christ. Now, none of us would ever be able to put this type of severity, this punishment into words. You see, Jesus was going to a cross. This is the sinless one, the perfect one, the one that was without sin. Jesus is the holy one. He's God's only begotten son. But unlike Abraham, as he took Isaac up that mountain, there would be no ram found in the thicket this time. There'll be no sacrifice as God allowed Abraham to have, uh, with, as, as God allowed Abraham and Isaac to, Isaac to be replaced with the ram. Brothers and sisters, this is important to understand because Jesus is the one and done sacrifice. Jesus is the one that would drink down that cup of iniquity. Jesus would, in this time in history, is preparing himself to take upon himself your sin. He's going to take all the sin all the sin for those who repent and believe the glorious gospel, the most heinous of sins, the things that man, man has done or is going to do that would make your skin crawl. Jesus took that sin, that ugly sin, and he took it upon himself. And then Jesus finished the job because that's what Jesus agreed to do before the foundations of the world. Some people ask this question, you know, why do bad things happen? to good people. I want to say that again. Why do bad things happen to good people? Brothers and sisters, that has only happened one time in our history, and that person volunteered. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, that argument in and of itself is flawed because it presupposes that people are good, and that is not true. You see, according to God's word, it says in Romans 3.10, there are none good, no, not one. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane, God is dealing with our sins, our checkered past, our baggage. The Garden of Gethsemane is not a park for little kids. This is a war. A war has just broken out on this battlefield. This is a war in this garden because the war that's being waged is the battle for our souls. Heaven and hell are literally hanging in the balance. 
I want you to let that sink in for just a moment, what I just got done telling you. Do you understand, brother or sister, the price that was paid for you on that cross? Is it still meaningful to you? Have you thought about it lately? The late fiery English preacher Leonard Ravenhill once said these words, if I was given 10 minutes to live and the Lord would be so gracious and allow me to preach a 10-minute sermon, I would use that sermon, I would use that teaching on the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. How incredible is that? But why did he say that? Because he said these words, and I quote, he said, it's the most beautiful thing human lips have ever uttered. He's talking about the prayer of Jesus in the garden, the one I read to you. I've got a question for you. Do you agree with Leonard Ravenhill that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is the most beautiful thing that lips have other, ever uttered? Clearly, Ravenhill knew something. He understood God's word. He understood the price that was paid for his soul. I want you to take a look at Hebrews chapter 5, 7 through 9 to further uh, you know, blow out this point or illuminate this point by Ravenhill. It says this, During his earthly life, this is Jesus, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one, this is God, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was protected, listen to this, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation. For who? For all of those who be obey him. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus suffered on the cross. The Son of Man suffered on the cross. And according to what I just got done reading to you, in doing so, he became the source of eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says that suffering should never catch the believer off guard. Peter warned us about suffering. And he says these words in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeals come amongst you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. This verse also drills home that point in Acts 14, 22. After strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through much suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. So why does God allow suffering? A lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because brokenness leads to openness. You see, when we are brought down to our knees during our time of great suffering, when we go low, our view of everything begins to change. We see everything differently. We recognize the, even the sins of self-reliance, the things that we do on our own accord that we were never supposed to do on our own. 
Why does God allow suffering? To deepen your prayer life. God's word says in Psalm 145, 18, that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. God wants us to call on him. He wants us to pray and deepen and sharpen our prayer lives. You know, sometimes we rely on people more than we do on God, and that would be a mistake. You know, our precious Rosa Stedman uh, told me a story a few months ago. She told me about how she woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning in severe pain. And in her pain, she was unable to, to go back to sleep, and she was unable to reposition her body to get herself comfortable. I'm not sure who was looking after her that night, but obviously they were asleep and she, she couldn't move and she found herself in great agony. And during that time of pain, she said, Pastor Charlie, God is so gracious because during that time, I just began to start praying. Rosa let me know that she prayed more during her time of suffering than she did during the times when she did not suffer. So why does God allow suffering? To show you God's richest blessings. I think sometimes as we talk about blessings, we hashtag blessings and everybody wants to be blessed, be blessed, and all these other sorts of things. But I don't want the focus to go there. I don't want it to go on a hashtag on Instagram. That's not where I want your mind to go. I want to really talk to you about God's richest blessings. You see, the world lacks an understanding of the things of God. They lack an understanding of what it really means to be blessed, but I want to teach you. You see, when you suffer, you begin to understand what it means. I mean, what it truly means to be blessed. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Romans 4, 7 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says, Blessed are those who hear God's word and keep it. Revelation 14, 13, and 19, 9 says this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's the Christian. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is true blessing. You see, the actual meaning of blessed means to be fully satisfied. It's referring to something, though. It's referring to those who receive God's favor regardless of circumstances. So what is blessing? Scripture repeatedly shows us that blessing is anything that gives, that, that God gives, that makes us fully satisfied in Him alone. What is blessing? Anything that helps us to relinquish the temporal and hold on to what's eternal. What is blessing? Anything. Anything that draws you near to Jesus, that is blessing. And this includes our suffering. Suffering prepares us for more glory, even more glory, as Paul would pen in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Let me read this glorious scripture to you. For our momentary 
momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Brothers and sisters, according to this text, suffering and affliction are doing something. They're preparing you. Suffering is preparing you. It's teaching you something. It's doing something in you. It keeps your eyes on glory. It keeps your eyes on eternal things. And it reminds you at the same time that what you are going through in your suffering is producing a steadfastness. It's producing maturity. It's growing you, stretching you, and you'll never, ever be the same. I want to talk to some of you who understand what it means to be suffering. Maybe even right now we're going through a great trial. But as I said before, you're either going into a trial, you're going into suffering, and if you're not in one yet, you'll be coming into one real soon. So I want to speak directly to Julie Cundell, Maureen Rodriguez, Amelia Blair, my mom, Annie Wright. Whatever it is that you're going through, God's using it. He's using all of it. All of this pain is doing something. It's transforming you. All of it is pushing you into a deeper life with God that you never thought would be possible. You see, when we experience suffering, when we experience loss, we don't long for a Mercedes Benz. We long for the presence of the holy and righteous God. God's greatest blessings always rest in God himself. When we have that, when we have God, then and only then are we truly blessed. So what does God want from us if or when we actually suffer? Well, he wants our obedience. He wants our praise. He wants that, that you would consider him your greatest treasure. God wants all of us to fully depend on him and him alone. He, he wants to bring to your mind all the things that right now that you currently have time for. What do you have time for right now? Do you have time for your friends, your family, your hobbies? And then I want you to take the things you have time for, the things that you spend your time doing, and I want you to compare that time with the time you spend with Him, the time that you spend in the Word of God or in prayer. I want you to ask yourself on this Lord's Day, what is it that's getting your attention? What is it that's getting your affections? What is it, brothers and sisters? According to Scripture, we know this, that the day of grace is going to come to an end. Today, if you live in Corona or Eastvale or Chino or wherever you're coming from, Riverside, you know this, that we live in a lost city. We live in a lost state, California, and we live in a lost country. Brothers and sisters, we are the only hope. We have the gospel. It is time for the Christians your pastor included, Pastor Larry that's sitting to my right. It's time for all of us to wage war against any sin that is hindering you from running the gospel race. We must be and develop being a people that tremble at God's word. 
We must be a people that are praying with the fierceness or the boldness of a lion. You see, when our prayers are intensified and our face is set towards God, there is no devil in hell that's going to scare us or move us. We won't be moved. We won't be moved by temporal things, those things that are shiny, grabbing our attentions, that are not of God and not helpful. You see, when God invades the life of one of his own, one of his children, it changes us. And ultimately, the pattern of change from believers that mature, you see something in that person, in that Christian. You see surrender, total surrender. God's people are called to surrender all. You see, sometimes we think, I'm going to surrender some. It's a partial surrendering. That is not going to help you. Surrendering some is going to land you in a place called hell. We must surrender everything. He's worthy of it. You see, when we surrender some, when you surrender what's convenient, and then when the pain comes, or, the, or, or the, the, the deep suffering comes, you are going to bail. You're not anchored to anything. You're going to be gone. And suffering is going to come. You will be tested. Afflictions, suffering, they test you. It separates the wheat from the chaff. Some of you on this Lord's Day need to surrender something. Maybe you need to surrender a friendship that's not helpful. Maybe it's a career that gets in the way of you growing in holiness or serving or going all in for the things of God. Maybe it's something else, but whatever it is, I'm asking you, what do you need to surrender? Let it go and be a people that surrender all. You see, this here I say with, with just as much grace as I can. I'm not mad at you. But some of you, you're more excited about end times than you are about the presence of Jesus. Think about that for a second. It's the presence of God that you need. Not, a, not another commentary on Revelation. When you're desperate it, during times of suffering, you want God. Some of you are more fascinated by the current world events rather than the Son of God Himself. That's not helpful. That's not helping you. Get rid of the television. Pour yourself in, fully surrendered to God while there's still time. Brothers and sisters, I have another concern this morning. Some of you come to the house of God on a regular basis, and I know the house of God during this time in history is more of a video screen, but, but you're regular. You watch, you hear, you listen, but you don't actually, you don't know the person that owns the house. You see, the house of God is God's house, but you go to the house of God, but you don't know the owner of it. It's more stuff you've memorized. It's a thing that you do. It makes you feel good, but there's no surrender. There's no transformation. There's no going all in for Christ. Lots of emotion, lots of talk, but no fruit. You see, this Garden of Gethsemane, it provides us hope. It's a place of solitude. It's a place of struggle. It's a place of submission. It's a place of strength. Brothers and sisters, that should be our life. Jesus has already come to this earth 
He's already drank the cup. He drank the cup of your past. He drank the cup of your present. And he drank the cup of your future sins. In this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus relied on a couple of things that we should take note of, brothers and sisters. He relied on scripture and he relied on prayer. He couldn't rely on his friends, I can tell you that. And brothers and sisters, so shall we. So shall we rely on scripture. So shall we rely in prayer. Shall we do these types of things in our greatest time of need? We need God. But brothers and sisters, I want you to rejoice in what we had, what we have. I want you to be sobered by some of these things. I want to get your attention. My job as a shepherd is not always to pat you on the back and say, good boy, good girl. And I know that some of these things can be offensive. And I know that some of you are going to probably send me a notice and you could have said it a little bit better. Not today. Not today. Today I want to do business. I'm in this with you. Time is short. I don't know how short, but I know this. Jesus is closer uh, coming back today than he was yesterday. And what I know according to scripture is my job is to be found ready. And one of the jobs of a shepherd of a church is to help the saints to be ready. I want you to be thankful for Christ, the one who drank your cup and drank it all the way to the bottom. Jesus' sacrifice was so great, so complete, that when he what he drank, what Jesus drank in several hours, you could not drink if you had the rest of your life to do so. I want you not to look at the time of his suffering, but I want you to look to the intensity of his suffering. That was a quote from Tim Challies. But brothers and sisters, as I close with you this morning, Rosa Stedman taught me, my wife, and many of you many things through her journey of suffering. She endured more than what she ever thought was possible. She endured, she remained. The things that Rosa did not understand on this side of eternity, and there were many things, are now being revealed to her in heaven. Besides, as I think, as I go back and think about some of my conversations with Rosa, I smile and I thank God for the time that we had. I cherish the time that I was able to be at Rosa's bedside during her final hours. It's what I would say as I was talking to Jim Wilson today. I said it was one of the highest honors that has ever been given to me as your shepherd. What a gift. How gracious God is to allow me to have been at her bedside. I'm so grateful. And I'm going to trust something. That I know that Rosa is in heaven. And I know that she's gone to a better place. I know all the coffee cup scriptures. I believe all of those things. I know she's in glory. I know that immediately she went to be with Jesus. But Mike didn't. He's still here on earth. Her husband, he's still here. And he's going to struggle a bit. He's suffering. Not like his wife did, because we can suffer in different ways. I think about his children. I think about them right now. Do you? I know you do. I know we, we are a loving church. But what I told Mike was, Mike, 
That same God that knows the number of hairs on your head. And by the way, that changes daily. That same God, that intimacy of God who knows everything about you, knows what you need and he's going to come through for you. And the children are going to be looked after. God loves Mike and loves those children. They're going to be okay, but it's going to be hard. But I want to close with the verses that I was able to share with Rosa during the last hours of her life. And these verses are fitting for this teaching this morning. It says this. It's found in Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. May that be said of you as well, brothers and sisters. I trust that you were challenged by the word this morning, but at the same time, I trust that you were encouraged by the word this morning. Let us be a people that don't say things like, what a great little sermon. Let's be a people who are marked and set apart by what we do with what we hear and what we know. And God can do something with that. Take your faith, make it, action, make it actionable until the whole world hears. God bless you, Lakeshore City Church. I love you.